Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy D. Kim is a Harvard-trained ethicist and co-founder of 180 Church NYC. He is a Yale Hastings Scholar at the Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and the Hastings Center, where he explores the inequities surrounding health, immigration, and social policies, along with professional burnout. He is also a regular contributor to Christianity Today. For more information, please visit his website at samdkim.com. Welcome for those who join us in person and online. Happy Mother's Day. And let's spend a moment in reflection before we go into the rule of life. How about we just think of our mothers. For me, my mom is in heaven. Both my parents are. Um, In hindsight, you realize for those who have their mothers alive or sick or or going through crisis, I'll tell you this, and I'm telling you this because it has nothing to do with the message. Um, you'll regret, in hindsight, not making more memories. Because in our human form of psychological form of coping with denial that our parents will be with us forever, they won't. So. Allow this moment to give you a moment to think about how you can, whether it's reconciliation, whether it's more creating more memories, whether it's just appreciating the moment. And I I know it's very difficult for kids to actually be grateful in the moment, but that's a practice that will benefit you in the long run. So for a moment, will you close your eyes with me before we practice the rule of life? And will you just think about your mom and one thing you're grateful for? One moment that you're thankful for and say, God, thank you for the mom you've given me. Or the figures that were like your mothers to you, that God provided. And then we'll exhale. all the ruminating, automatic thoughts that get in the way of listening and hearing God's voice, the thoughts that harass us, that accuse us, and attack us. We bind in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And inhale the presence of God, the transcending peace of God, and His presence in your life working at this very moment. Sarah Young, May 8th, Jesus Calling. Do not long for the absence of problems in your life. This is an unrealistic goal, since in this world you will have trouble. You have an an eternity of problem-free living reserved for you in heaven. Rejoice in that inheritance, which no one can take away from you. But do not seek your heaven on earth. Begin each day anticipating problems, asking me to equip you for whatever difficulties you will encounter. 
The best equipping is my living presence, my hand that never let go of yours. Discuss everything with me. Take a light-hearted view of trouble, seeing it as a challenge that you and I together can handle. Remember, I am on your side. I have overcome the world. All God's people pray. Amen. Today's message is in the tradition of few weeks ago when I said the day after the resurrection. Today, I want to look at a prospective view since then and there and ask the question, 2,000 years after the resurrection, what has changed? Ask the person next to you, what has changed? What has changed? Well, first, what has changed, lightheartedly, is the chicken sandwich. Let's put this picture up here. Chick-fil-A, they do admit and posit very clear that they didn't make the chicken, but they did make the chicken sandwich. Chick-fil-A, compared to any other fast food that I've been to, they treat me like a prince. I mean, I talk about, I don't know any other besides In-N-Out which is another Christian organization, the roots of a Christian organization. But people just aren't enamored and sort of a, like a cult-like following for Chick-fil-A. Even in New York, where their stance on some conservative values sort of you know, really prick at the left, or left values. But they just say, you know what? The chicken sandwich is too good. I'm going to get in line. I'm going to go anyway. Chick-fil-A started with Christian values, and this is why, because they believe in the Sabbath, they don't open on Sundays. Yet, and the resurrection has influenced that decision, yet they gross compared to every other fast food chain. The most per capita in every single store. They, they gross $4.8 million for each store. All you need is $10,000 to start a franchise. But you have to go through, how many people are thinking about this now? And partic you know, particularly if you open one and they vet you, very, it's a very vigorous type of um, vetting process. But once you own, you can own 10. And you make hundreds of thousands on each. You don't technically own the store, but you're a steward of the store. But $4.8 million is the most for any fast food per store. That's 100,000 a week. And this is their mission statement on their corporate official statement. It says, the business exists to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us, to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Their website says, for their public statement, it says, Chick-fil-A, a culture and service and tradition of our restaurants, is to treat every person with honor, dignity, and respect, regardless of their belief, race, creed, sexual orientation, or gender. I think they added that later <laughs> because of the controversy. But... <clears throat> If you want to take a lighthearted approach, after the resurrection, then and there, 
the, the most, basically, high revenue business of all fast food chains, more than McDonald's, way more than McDonald's per store, any other fast food chain. It's a Christian business that does not, it's privately owned, and that does not open on Sundays. And when you go in, you're treated with dignity because of the Imago Dei, that you're inherently valuable in the image of God. When you ask the question, what has changed after 2,000 years after the resurrection, it's changed everything. But because we are so inherently Christian culturally, it's hard to tell sometimes. Like, for example, for me, the first time I appreciated a toilet was when I went to a mission trip in Kazakhstan where you had to go to the bathroom the old way, which was in the bushes. And in the summertime, mosquitoes, you know, are attracted to what you're excreting. You know what I'm saying? So it wasn't a picture. I didn't know that toilets didn't exist really, didn't really value them, right? Because they're ubiquitous, tertiary in many ways, because they're everywhere. Until I was like, wow. That's what missionaries are for North America. Make you appreciate what you have here. Doesn't really help the people there short term. But the resurrection has changed Western culture and the world in many ways in such ubiquitous ways that it's hard even to tell. And even people who are staunch atheists, skeptical and antagonistic to faith, are actually more Christian than they think. So when you ask the question, what's changed, it's changed everything but implicitly because we become so Christian, and I'll go into that for the next few weeks, how the resurrection, how Jesus, this Palestinian poor Jewish rabbi who was crucified by Caesar, not only created instability for one of the greatest empires of all time, but changed what you value here and now. So much, in fact, it's become your value that you don't even realize it's from the tree of glory and the resurrection. So let's go to this passage here, back to the week after the resurrection, and triangulate sort of a way to see the contrast. What happened then and there? What, what is Jesus doing then and there after the resurrection? A week after the resurrection, to 2,000 years, or precisely 2,022 years after the resurrection. So verse 26 in John tells you very clearly, a week later, this is the day after the resurrection happened, and Thomas missed it. We talked about that, that he had major FOMO, and this is why C.S. Lewis, reading the Gospels came up with the idea of Aslan, which is equivalent to Jesus in our world, but in Narnia, his name is Aslan, and why he disappears seamlessly in Narnia, sometimes for centuries. Because he's drawing the literary parallel from the Gospels, how Jesus disappears out of nowhere and shows up again throughout history. So, verse 26, a week, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. 
Through the doors, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, O oh Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me, yet have believed. That verse 29, I think it's critical to ask that question. 2,000 years after the resurrection, what has changed? The week after the resurrection, Jesus' mission has not changed at all. Jesus is reaching out to a skeptic, those who doubt God and his power, his very own disciple. And he is literally going out of his way to help Thomas. But he doesn't only think of Thomas, he thinks of who? Those who will believe, who do not see. He's thinking about us. Tell someone next to you, he's thinking about you 2,000 years ago. Tell him, he's thinking about you. You're like, Jesus, think about me. Yes, he did. The Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, was thinking about Union Square right here at this moment. Jesus' mission has remained the same 2,000 years ago. Then and there to here and now. He's reaching out and tells Thomas, the people that will hear. And he goes, in many ways, they'll be cooler than you, Thomas. Many ways they'll be given more credit than you because you have seen miraculous things and yet still not believed. But those who hear the message, Jesus is on mission. The first thing he does after the resurrection is go back on a mission. He's a savior on purpose for purpose, going through walls to reach the lost the one sheep. That's a kingdom value that's never lost in the mission of the church because the Savior is still searching for those who are broken and lost, who are seeking Him. When a church loses that mystical heart, the church becomes obsolete. When it becomes liturgy, and liturgy is important in how we connect to God, but when it becomes about us, and not others who did not hear the gospel, others who are broken, then we are no longer really in the classical definition, the ecclesia. You know, we lose the ecclesiology of what the church is meant to be. Jesus is on a mission. And by the way, this week I completed my first draft of my book. Completed completely. Thank you. Leighton Ford, my hero in evangelism and mission, who was the chairman for the Luzon from 1974 and on, agreed to forward my book, which is like a dream come true because I remember 2010 at Cape Town, the, the third Luzon Congress on World Evangelism. I remember being on call, never met him before, just a dream. A mentor of a mentor was mentored by him. And I was on a call with 4,000 other leaders. 
convening to Cape Town. And the next Luzon gathering they announced this past week will be in Seoul, Korea. So I'm very, very motivated to attend to this one. But I might miss out on some sessions and go eat some food. <laughs> I've done that at Cape Town too and I'm known for that. But I'm a positive influence though. We talk about Jesus at the restaurant. <laughs> but uh, I mean, forwarding the book, and one of the things that, you know, they're going to ask for all your help, those watching online here, I'm going to need Amazon reviews. <laughs> Not honest ones, but like, you know, really good now. <laughs> I'm kidding. But um, w one of the things that I've noticed writing the book was the privilege of being in a community where there is an authentic move of the Spirit leading people to Jesus that at the core of why all our volunteers and all our workers and why people give and sacrifice to this mission is because of this missiological heart we have for the one that Jesus has for. That mission has not changed even 2,000 years after. And I remember writing about the stories for the last few years and I was overwhelmed because sometimes you forget, right? Like I always say that the sacred and the, and the humdrum is defined by our memory. And sometimes you forget the, the wonder and the awe of the work of the Spirit sometimes because it's so implicit in our community. And I remember Joey's story. I think she's with, gone uh, when Mother's Day. But let's put this picture up here. Um, Joey's story particularly, and I've been writing on many, stories in our community, and I just read her testimony one more time. And you know, it was so powerful to think and reflect about how Jesus moves in a church. You know, you think that Jesus moves when you preach the gospel on Sunday, but it's really, that gospel fluency, really flow, it flows in community. And in her testimony, I'm going to give you some snapshots. And she said, uh, when she starts, she goes, I started going to church again after having experienced it at Ithaca at Cornell when she was a freshman in college. I couldn't really explain it to myself, but I, I wanted to answer the strange longing in my heart. I probably chalked it up to unfinished business and a chapter I was ready to close. But looking back at it now, I know it was God calling me. Just like the devotional. What is it? Jesus calling. Tell someone next to you, Jesus calling. <laughs> That's why Jesus calling is the number one selling book. Did you know that? It's like in the top 50 or top 10 on Amazon all the time. Jesus, why? Because Jesus' calling has never changed. That mission of the Savior calling to those who are empty, broken, and in despair, looking for the light in darkness has not changed. And she goes, I went to different churches to try and find answers, not wanting to feel the emotions that overwhelmed me in college or start relationships that felt so temporary. I went into these churches with the goal to get in and get out, but we never let her out. Now we have her forever. We imprisoned her by love. <laughs> I'm probably embarrassing her online, but sorry, Joey. Um, I was foolish. He goes, it was a foolish way to try to learn about God because knowing God is all about being in a relationship with Him. I learned 
At 180, I met and developed so many unexpected friendships. I'm sure that's the same for a lot of people. And I learned so much about God from people that really cared for me, the story, my story, the people who generally cared for God. And it was through these friendships, and then the quote, she says, many, many small groups <laughs> of arguing with people. And so many, many Bible studies of just asking a lot of questions. And the walls, the, those brick walls of Mulberry Street. I think it was Kegel's room back then. I could imagine Jesus walking in through those doors as well. Can you? When seekers and people hearing the call of Jesus walk into your community, though, unlike Thomas, Joey didn't see Jesus there, Jesus walked in through those doors. And when she was arguing with Sean, about the Bible study and others, about how this and how that, and how she would cry sometimes during small group or during Bible study. And for two years, for 24 months going through this, Jesus was there. Because his mission has not changed. And this is what she says. I remember in tears during the baptism. I didn't understand for the longest time why the disciples couldn't recognize Jesus when he appeared to them because he was present in flesh. But I almost couldn't recognize him either. And it's scary to know that I might have missed him until my wife caught the fish, you know what I'm saying? My wife's like, that's my fit now. <laughs> she felt a call, Jesus calling to represent and led her to Christ one night. But she says, I used to question why God couldn't make this journey easier for people. Why couldn't he just prove to us that he was real by showing up? But the truth is, God showed up every day in my life, in a friend, and you know who you are, in a story about how Jesus touched your life, and in his word. 2,000 years after the resurrection, what has changed? Everything. But one thing remained. First, what we learned from this passage. Read with me. His mission remains completely unchanged and is one and the same. His mission remains completely unchanged and is one and the same. Jesus is a prodigal God looking for the one lost sheep. A friend of mine who won the award for Christianity Today category in evangelism called the Unbelievable Gospel asked this question. Jonathan Dobson asked, is it worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in urban cities today to reach just one person for Christ? When denominationals and, and um, organizational leaders question the cost to do ministry in the cities of the world, can you justify one lost sheep? And he says, that's the question we are asking. Because if it takes 
that long can you justify the cost? And of course, Jesus' answer will be, what are you talking about? I left the 99. For what? For the one. And the question I have for you today is, are you on mission? Because this is Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission has remained the same after the resurrection, has not changed. Social justice is a prism in which this gospel manifests itself. But the primary thrust of the New Testament, of course it's not divorced from it, is the proclamation and the incarnation of this message. And if the church cannot live that out, it becomes obsolete to its external environment. Has our mission remained the same with Jesus? Because the more Christian you become, the less missional you become. That's what studies show. But I just want to let you know, Jesus is calling both the believer and the seeker to come in convergence with each other. Because that's what it takes. It takes eight positive impressions for someone that's been completely secular to even consider the veracity of the gospel. So I want to pray today that the Holy Spirit will again move you toward Jesus' mission, the mission Jesus is on, not sustaining a community or a church, not sustaining just my community, but the very thrust of the New Testament is that we join him. Do you hear Jesus calling? Are you in line with his mission to seek and save the one? If not, time to repent. Because maybe it's not just defective theology, but a defective heart. We all need to go to the crucible and the cross and remind it again what this is all about. That's what it's about. And I pray the Spirit would convict us today. Amen? Tell someone next to you, one, just one, one lost, which makes no sense. Because if a business said just one customer, they'll go out of business. But this is not economical. It's really what? It's cosmological. One person is cosmologically significant because they're children of God. And the father is seeking, the prodigal God is seeking his sons and daughters. So let's move down here. Something radical about this passage that I didn't realize as I write more detail in my book, as I talk really, the first time I actually processed how I came from doubt, because there, were, there was a period like I shared in, in Easter and many other times about the very veracity of the gospel, historicity of, every, of Jesus and, you know, the whole thing. And how I sort of navigated through a spiritual crisis of my own and how God led me through it, the doubt. And in this passage, you see very clearly something in the subtext of the passage that we often miss, that miracles in themselves don't change anyone. It's something else. It has to be something even greater than miracles. 
Because miracles and miraculous signs, if you look at this passage, Thomas saw Jesus, but he wouldn't believe. He, would, he has to touch him. He has to go further than that. The, his friends told him Jesus was alive. Jesus told him that he'll be alive in three days after he died. For three and a half years, he still didn't believe. And those who worship Jesus after the resurrection, the text says very clearly in the Gospels, some doubted. So miracles in, of themselves do not, miraculous signs, do not absolve all doubt and produce faith. But if you look at this passage carefully, something more powerful overwhelms Thomas. And that's what I want to talk about here, about what has changed. The approach of a Lord or a God in the ancient world ruled by power. Now, this Lord rules by love, patience, not power. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, in verse 24, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were. See, Thomas is one of those skeptics, maybe like some of us, right? Starkey, no, no, that's not true, that's not true. And put his hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Maybe in other words, he said, Boo. But then he said to Thomas, you, I heard you've been talking about me, bro. Put your finger here and see my hands. Why? Because Jesus was there. He's omnipresent. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. But did Thomas believe because this was a miracle? No. This wasn't a miraculous act by Jesus, right? What was it? an act of love. It's an act of patience. It's an act of tolerance. For me, patience is the most difficult thing about love. Like what? Quicker. For me, it's everything quicker. Eat quicker. Get there quicker. Get there faster. For Jesus, he's done everything and more for Thomas to believe, yet he goes, what? The extra mile. That's not miraculous. That's hospitality. That's patience. That's an act of love. Love, Paul says, is what? Patient and kind. Patience and kindness are inseparable in the layer of love. It's God's love that's the only thing strong enough to tame the willful blindness and the pride of humanity. That's what made Thomas believe. God thawed his heart. God melted away the heart of stone, as Ezekiel promises, and gave him the heart of flesh. The love of God. Oh, felt that. Tell someone the love of God. God is patient with you as well, and me. And that's why we believe just from an empirical standpoint, we wouldn't believe if there's no stimulus, no tension in our relationship with God, the up and downs 
And God picking us up, redeeming us as we fall. As we doubt meeting us where we're at. None of us would be here. And that is what's changed from then and there, this approach. Caesar used to kill, right? Tiberius Caesar killed millions of people, millions of girls, as a political stunt. And the streets of Rome, let's put this picture up here. Everyone's seen the gladiator, right? What you do here and now shall be echoed to eternity. Russell Crowe. The brutality. Think, just think about this. I know we have UFC and, and humanity and the human nature for blood and the lust for death has not changed. This is why, in a, in a way, explains Joe Rogan's popularity. UFC is tied to that and this brutality. But if you think about the ancient world and its makeup of ancient times, think about just the idea of building a coliseum to kill slaves for your entertainment in the most brutal way possible. Eaten by a lion or cut through the throat. The world in Caesar's day, Tiberius Caesar's day, and all the Caesars, was ruling the world through utter cruelty. The strong dominated the weak. This was natural selection. Before Darwin, Darwin's theory would stand in the ancient world. This is understood. If you were a slave, you were subjugated as a result of your positionality. Today, we fight for the little guy. We fight for Ukraine. We've excommunicated Russia for invading it. Today, those who suffer in patience are looked upon and who love others and are patient with others, countries, economies, are viewed in a favorable light than the ones who dominate unethically. Why? Jesus changed everything about the way we live and think. And it starts here with Thomas, a week after the resurrection. The approach of patience, kindness, love. The idea of equality, the idea of the sense that human beings are inherently valuable, made in the image of God, made all things through him and by him. Tom Holland says this, the Cambridge historian, award-winning historian who's spent significant amount of time in Great Britain studying the ancient antiquity and ancient cultures of Greek and the Romans, says this. He wrote a piece in 2016 that completely said I was wrong about Christianity. He said, my ethics and morals that dominate the Western world is not Greek or Roman. It's thoroughly and probably Christian. And this is what he says. The more you live in the mind of Romans, and I think even more of the Greeks, the more alien they come to seem, the more frightening they come to seem, 
What becomes most frightening, really, is a kind of quality of the callousness that I think is terrifying because it's completely taken for granted. There's a kind of an innocent quality about it. No one really questions it. Caesar is, by some accounts, slaughtering a million Gauls and enslaving another million in the cause of boasting, boosting his political career and far from feeling in any way embarrassed about this. It's like Putin is not. He's promoting it. And when he holds this triumph, people are going through the streets of Rome carrying billboards, boasting about how many people he's killed. This really is terrifyingly alien world. And the more you look at it, the more you realize that it's built on a systemic and systematic exploitation in almost every way. This is a world that is unspeakably cruel in our way of thinking. And this world worried me more and more. Just think about even the Middle East and the context of what we think as repressive. We considered the Middle East in many ways, and from Western values, repressive. Like women's rights are questioned. But if you think about even Islam and how it's influenced by the resurrection, although Islam do not believe Jesus is God, they do believe he was a prophet. And very clearly, in Islam's doctrine, it's an offshoot of Judaism and Christianity, because it comes 700 years after Ando Domini, meaning the foundation of Islam and many of its laws, Mosaic laws and the teachings of Jesus, is embedded in it. Right? It doesn't come from a vacuum. We consider it repressive, but if you read Genesis, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we think that Christianity in the West sometimes, in the Red states are repressive. We go, you know, LGBT community, we question that. The, but the behavior of homosexuality, the behavior of all of that is not new. You, you could read from Sodom and Gomorrah in modern-day Iraq about 3,000 years ago, right? You see men coming to the door of Lot, knocking it down, saying, we want to sleep with the man that has visited you. They were angels. And they were knocking and violently breaking in to sexually exploit those men. And these were men at the door. So you go, well, repressive? How is that repressive? That's 3,000 years ago before the resurrection, before Christ. The laws in Iraq was brutal, just like Rome. There was no laws. There's no protection for people. You were a woman, you were going to be exploited. You were a man, you're going to be exploited. It was all about power. Ancient world, you go to 2,000 years ago and you go to Roman culture, a Roman citizen was given the right to exploit sexually in any way they thought, whether it was an animal, a slave, or a person, to satisfy their sexual desire in any way they wanted. This is not new. Now, the identity thing is new, but the behavior is not. So, if you want to Compare it, well, they're repressive. No, not technically. They're actually progressive from where they were. The change is remarkable that there are some rights before there were no rights. But we take it for granted because we're very Christian, more Christian than Tom Holland thinks. 
They go, man, I, I'm actually a Christian. Now, and he's still agnostic. He doesn't know if he actually believes in Jesus. And people are mad at him right now. Especially a lot of philosophers are really peed off. Because it's like, what? Dude, I thought you were with us. I thought you were cool. And Tom was like, dude, I studied it. And let me read you the final quote here. And then we'll close for today. Compacted into this very very small amount of writing was almost everything that explains the modern world and the way the West has then moved on to shape concepts of international law, concepts of human rights, all these kinds of things. Ultimately, they don't go back to the Greek philosophers. They don't go back to Roman imperialism. They go back to Paul. His letters, I think, along with the four Gospels, are the most influential and the most impactful and the most revolutionary writings that has emerged from the ancient world. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. What has changed 2,000 years after the resurrection? Last lesson we learned from this text, comparing it after the week of the resurrection then and there to 2,000 years after, is this. I'll go, I'll go back to that. Just go to the point. Read with me. The world, as we know today, would not only be foreign, it would be alien to anyone from the Greco-Roman world. It would not just be foreign, it would be alien. In many ways, the idea, Craig Keener, the leading New Testament scholar at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky, which is not leading in any way, but he says, from atheism to belief, the reason why he believes is because he couldn't believe that a god in the middle of a Greco-Roman worldview would give his life for slaves and peasants. He goes, that is alien, not just foreign. The idea, the apologetics that a king would die for no one to give his life for his subjects is never seen before. That is how the world has changed. So therefore, the question is, where are you with Jesus after 2,000 years of the resurrection? What is he saying to you? How is Jesus calling you to participate in his mission? Sometimes we get distracted by modern conveniences. I, I too get distracted. The game is on. I want to buy those Ralph Warren pants. I want, I want to go on vacation to Bali. I, and, and, and these modern conveniences, very like Rome, let us live mostly, for, sometimes free of suffering in many ways. But if our Savior went into the crucible of suffering for the worth of humanity that were subjugated and imprisoned in many ways in bondage to tyranny, how is our life reflecting that love today? <laughs> that, 
here's a question that I struggle with, and I'm not holier than thou. I'm not saying I'm living that completely. I'm just saying I'm a fellow friend along the journey. That's something to think about, talk about, because we have, we have to get back on mission if we've been distracted or lost. Amen? Because Jesus is still, guess what, after the resurrection, on mission. Still looking for the lost sons and daughters. And he's calling us to join him and do the same. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. I want to read to you, as we close today, the portion of Scripture that has literally transformed the ancient world and integrated its values to Western civilization and the rest of the world. So you can go back to the Beatitudes. Will you lift your hands today with me and let the greatest sermon of all time in Matthew 5, laying out the vision of the kingdom be a reminder to what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus says to the crowd, Bless are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When in the present moment it was blessed are those in power. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. We're now being more progressive. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let's make this our prayer today as we close.
Father, we come before you this afternoon. 2022 years after you died and rose again. What has not changed since then and there, it's your mission to seek and save the lost, to uplift the dignity of all creation, including the earth and every living creature, and us, sentient beings that have been endowed by your image, the image of the Creator, that's worth infinitely more than the cosmos itself. Help us be informed by you calling us to your mission. Help us hear, as they say in Chronicles of Narnia, and see that Aslan is on the move and how we can join him, free those who are in bondage, those who are lost, and those who are living in tyranny with the good news of the gospel. Help us keep our eyes open to join you in your work. And secondly, God, give us confidence in what we now call a post-Christian age and what even what we call secular. When in fact, it's only been 200 years since we call it that almost 1,800 years of it is still thoroughly Christian and still intact of what the values you have imputed. Don't be afraid, friends. The world is not as secular as you think. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what revival is. It's reviving the person that's responsible for those values, the things we treasure, the things that free us, the things that give us light to go into the world and join Jesus in remaking the world again. Because Jesus, as he was calling his disciples 2,000 years ago, is still calling today until he returns. Will you bow your heads for the benediction? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people say, Amen. Happy Mother's Day. Go in peace. Amen. Hi, everyone. Happy Sunday. So glad to see you all here. My name is Haley, and I'm a member here at 180 Church, and I will be sharing some community news with you. First off, let's talk about tithes and offering. If you're a member here at 180 Church, we ask that you continue to keep God at the center of your finances and to tithe faithfully, which you can do using Venmo, Zelle, Chase QuickPay, or PayPal. If you're a visitor here with us today, we welcome you to our service and there's no financial obligation to give. But if you'd like to make a donation, you can do so with the methods above. 
Next, we have Bible Reading Group. We have an Instagram handle and a Tumblr page at 180BRG, where you can join us at any time to read the Bible. Feel free to follow along and feed your soul with the Word of God. Amen. Next, there are devotionals on sale at the 180 Cafe. They're great to help you get in the habit of praying and connecting with God every day. Sometimes I find it hard to find, form the words to pray, but these devotionals have been so helpful and inspirational. They're available at the 180 Cafe and it's an honor system. So you can purchase them via Venmo or QuickPay. Speaking of prayers, we have our prayer hotline. We invite you to use this resource to ask for prayer for anything or anyone in your life and it's completely confidential. You can text 5397prayer or email prayer at 180church.tv and know that there will be a team praying for you on the other end. Prayers are so powerful and I can't tell you how many times my prayers were heard and answered. So I want to encourage you to get out there and pray and ask for prayer for where two or three are gathered in his name, God is with them. Yes. So let's talk about social media. There, these are the ways you can stay connected with us throughout the week. We have several media outlets from Facebook to Instagram to Dr. Sammy's Twitter page and even our YouTube page. We are very active on social media and there are multiple ways to share the message with your friends and family and also stay connected in the community. Let's not forget about our YouTube live stream. We know that things pop up and it's not always possible to physically attend Sunday service, but not to worry because Sunday service is being live streamed weekly on YouTube, so you never have to miss another service. So say hello to the YouTube viewers. Hello. And it's also a great way to share the gospel with friends and family. Next up is small groups. Small groups are a great way to process what you heard on Sundays with brothers and sisters along the journey of faith. We know that no one is meant to do faith alone and small groups have been an amazing way to know that we are in this together. It's also a great way to um, get to know each other, grow deeper in, with, in relationship with each other and reflect and apply sermons to our daily lives. And honestly, it's so much fun. I look forward to it every week to meet with the group and you know, we just have fun doing life together. So that's great. Um, adult groups meet on Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Young adult groups meet on Thursdays at 7.30 p.m. College Fellowship meets on Mondays at 7.30. And if you need any additional info, please speak to any of the greeters in 180 shirts or hoodies. Now, this is the exciting one. Are you, are you guys ready? Okay, I, I want to introduce 180 merch, okay? I know, you've been all waiting for this. It's not exclusive anymore. You can purchase your 180 merch at the 180 Cafe. There's a variety of tops in different fabulous colors, all donning the stylish 180 um, emblem and other cool designs. Like some of them have like cool designs on the back. Not mine, but others. Um, so you can get one of those. Uh, after service, you can head straight to the 180 Cafe to purchase your new 180 shirt, hoodie, or sweatshirt and they can be purchased with the same honor system as the devotionals. If you have any questions, you can speak to our merch designer, Andy, wherever he is. Oh, he's in the back, there he is. Um, and he can help you. And I can't wait to twin with all of you once you purchase your merch. Okay, next we have Day in the Sun. Our next Day in the Sun will be on May 15th at 12.30 p.m. We will be meeting at the East Pintum in Central Park. So, be on the lookout for an email to RSVP. 
Let's pray for beautiful May weather and an awesome time of fellowship. Also, let's start thinking about the people in our lives who we can invite and share the good news with. Uh, now, for those of you with the heart to serve or feel like you're being led to serve, we have children's ministry. We need volunteers to serve, love, and teach our church's youngest members. They are really doing meaningful and soul-filling work there. My children are learning that they are God's treasures, like I told you last time. And also, my daughter always gets super excited for Sunday school. She says, oh, she loves Sunday school, so they're having a good time there. Um, they are building relationships and growing up in this community feeling loved and known, and that's really special. So if you want to be friends with our community's littlest members and be loved by me and other parents, go see Michelle Kim or Pastor Lydia for more details. Next, we have cafe volunteers. Coffee brings me so much joy, and I know it brings you guys joy too. So you can share some joy by serving up a cup of coffee before service. No barista skills are required. So if you want to serve or impress people with your latte art, please see Danny O or Wendy Lee for more details. And lastly, we have greeting volunteers. Who doesn't love a friendly face when they walk in? I know everybody does. And if you want to be that friendly face that brings smiles and makes people feel welcomed, this is for you. If you're interested, please see Danny O or Wendy Lee for more details. Now those are all of our announcements we have today.